This season is sponsored by Future Farm, the revolutionary meatless meat food company from Brazil. They're cooking up products which can match and exceed our juicy meaty favourites on taste, texture and sizzling flavour using only 100% natural ingredients. My favourite? There's too much choice. But if I had to choose, hands down, it would be the future meatballs and future mints in my classic lasagna dish. And get this, they're standing up for some pretty big things too, like reclaiming the Amazon rainforest back by fostering the movement towards GMO-free and deforestation-free products in place of those that are unethical and illegal. Definitely not just another plant-based brand, hey? Very up my street. The full Future Farm range is available now at Sainsbury's. Hello and welcome to the Crazy Sexy Food Podcast. I'm your host, Hannah Harley-Young. This podcast is all about the love of food and how it plays a part in our lives. I sit down with well-known personalities, industry insiders, and people who, well, just love their food to find out all about their life, career, and favorite tastes along the way. Today, I'm joined by Porna Bell, a woman who came to my attention a couple years ago when I first got into podcasts. Her story, eloquence, and strength resonated so much with me that she's been on my hit list of guests for a while now. Porna is an award-winning journalist, writer, public speaker, and even a powerlifter, more on that later, and is the former executive editor of HuffPost UK. From South Indian heritage, spending her childhood between India and the UK, I'm so excited to delve into her food story and discover a bit more about this wonderful woman. Upon researching for this chat, Porna has already divulged that her favourite snack stemming from childhood was cheese and mint sauce. I know that we are going to get along now. (laughs) Porna's story is one of resilience, strength, growth and authenticity. And so it gives me great pleasure to welcome her on the podcast. Hello. (laughs) Hi. What an intro. Thank you. How are you? Yeah, that is such a loaded question. I was just about to say it's such a loaded question. And I do mean it very seriously. How are you? Um, well, I am very pleased to say that I am really good. It does help that we're in a very unseasonal um, mini heat wave at the moment. Yeah. Um, and we're both in vests. And I, was, I, haven't I was worn... just about to say, <laughs> yeah. first time in like six months. <laughs> yep. Yeah. So it's nice not to have about six layers of clothing on. Um, yeah. So I am actually really good. Uh, feeling very positive and in a good space at the moment. Good. And have you had breakfast today? I have, yeah. Um, I <laughs> I never used to be a breakfast person, but it's something I I can't imagine not having. Um, and it's uh, it's always the same breakfast, uh, okay. which um, is two boiled eggs, um, some smoked salmon, and some cottage Ooh. cheese, which I know is going to be absolutely disgusting to some people. Do you know what? Yeah. I've never got into the cottage cheese thing, and I sort of feel like it's mm. one of those things that I would like because I quite like that creamy sort of cheese, but Mm. I don't know why. I really need to get into it. But that's a very Uh, healthy breakfast. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's very um, protein heavy. uh, And I definitely, because I I do weightlift and I am weightlifting a lot at the moment. So I'm trying to build a bit of muscle. So the cottage cheese 
one of the things I would say is you have to flavor it because if you have it plain, it is the most disgusting thing. So I have loads of black pepper, cracked black pepper with it. Um, But I intersperse it, like I sort of change it out sometimes either with hummus or... Oh, nice. Yeah, red pepper hummus or um, avocado. So it just depends. Lovely. I know. Mm. I'm being inspired. Mm. So not to dwell too much on the past year, but it's obviously been a year understatement of the century I think yeah um how have you kind of navigated yourself through it um you know has it affected your writing your training are you fed up with cooking yet you know sort of from that angle of things how has it sort of been for you it's been very up and down in that um I mean I live on my own so and I I really like to spend long periods of time alone um but obviously the pandemic challenged that in ways that uh, were unforeseeable. So I think for a big part of the beginning, I was actually okay with the actual concept of being on my own, even though obviously not seeing your friends and family uh, was pretty terrible. But uh, the thing that overshadowed all of this was that I caught COVID last March um, and I lost my sense of taste and smell for about two weeks. And I didn't know what was going on because back then it wasn't a known symptom of COVID. And then I ended up having long COVID, which are the longer term symptoms of it. So I had that for about, um, you know, kind of eight to 10 months and I've recovered now. But that the reason why I mention all of that is uh, not just because that was an additional layer on top of, you know, just trying to work and live and write a book during a pandemic, which is what I did last summer. But it radically altered how I was able to taste things because my I had um parosmia which is a distortion of your taste and smell for about eight months and that's a long time it it was a long time and as someone who loves food likes to cook um having distortion particularly for example something like garlic like garlic was a was a an ingredient that smelled absolutely vile it was like something that you'd find at the bottom of a, a soggy bin you know and garlic is an ingredient that I cook with a lot. Like I make, I use it in almost every single meal. Mm. So that was interesting, pivoting to food that I really like. So things like toast and baked beans and whatnot, I like periodically. But, you know, it is fairly bland. But having to sort of move towards blander food that was more about texture, that was that was very unmooring in terms of realizing that the dishes that I really loved making would have to just be put no pun intended on the back burner for a while sorry that was terrible no I love a pun (laughs) love a pun I mean because I I had COVID um over Christmas and I ended up losing my sense of taste and smell sort of on the back end of recovering from it and mm. I sort of went through that moment of slight panic because I was a bit like, well, food is the last thing I have left in this world right now. So like, you can't take that away from me. But interestingly that you talk about the garlic and I, I've forgotten the word that you use, but for me, it was coffee. So I had yeah, a coffee every morning. Coffee. And but the, the taste of the coffee, it was I don't know if you agree with this, but it was like I could taste the undertones of the coffee and not the actual coffee. And it was, and I'd sort of drink it every morning, and I'd be like, "What is this? Like, I I know I can kind of taste something, but it's not what I'm used to." 
Yeah, it was exactly that. So whenever I coffee was a very common one for people that had that, by the way. So it was it was specific things. So it was coffee, uh, garlic, um, peppermint, you know, and and coffee, for example, um, when I would walk past a coffee shop when they were open, the smell of so I guess what you're referring to is those top notes of what coffee smells like smell absolutely it would make me nauseous you know to walk past that but I guess coffee for me is something I love but it's not as part of my day-to-day as it might be um, for other ingredients that I used you know Mm. and uh, one of the things less food related was that I didn't smell like myself so I couldn't actually smell what I knew I smelt like and the, I, I, there are honestly, Hannah, there are no words to describe what that's like because it's such a detachment from from yourself, right? Absolutely. Like in terms of, we know that in food, smell is such a fundamental part of how you relate to it, but you never really think about not being able to smell like yourself and mm. just running around my flat, you know, periodically trying to sniff an armpit was not cool. <laughs> but when it <laughs> when it eventually came back, I was so happy. Um, but it, yeah, it took a good, that took about eight months or so. The moment, um, you know, not to be all dramatic about it, but the moment when I realized, um, that it had come back was another ingredient was, um, was onion. So onion also smell awful and especially frying onions. Frying onions is like the most delicious smell in the world, I right? I think one of the best. It is. It really is. Because and and my I was around my mum and dad, and my mum was frying some onions because she was making a curry for lunch, and I realised that it smelled like a frying onion, and I had not smelt that for months. And that was again. I just she wasn't in the kitchen, so she didn't witness me do this. But I literally took my head and I shoved it inside the pot to like give it a good old sniff. <laughs> I mean, that's one way to do it. That is one way to do it. <laughs> I love it. You're not doing anything half-heartedly, half-heartedly are you? <laughs> okay, I want to take it back to your childhood. So you were born and raised in Maidstone. You went back to India when you were seven, came back to the UK, I think around 12. I want to know what you were eating, who was cooking, what was your relationship with food like, was it important in your family? Um, I'm very excited to hear this answer. So the floor <laughs> is yours. <laughs> okay. So my family are South Indian. Um, and we come from, so we come from Karnataka, which is one of the Southern states. And more specifically than that, which is a place that people might recognize a bit more is Bangalore, which yeah, is the sort of city. Yeah. So, um, my, my childhood, which was in Maidstone, I remember, um, a mixture of things of, you know, just obviously going to school and you'd have things like fish and chips and so on. And I would say that my experience around this is is probably going to be quite common to a lot of other British Asians that um, live in the UK. But there was a push and pull between, especially when you, you know, you're six or seven, <clears throat> where you want to eat stuff like fish and chips and, you know, oven food. And you go home and your mum obviously makes this incredible homemade meal, uh, which you don't appreciate at all. And then you kind of have this battle of wills because you don't want to eat curry. Um, and also it's, you know, spicy. There's a whole sort of push and pull between all of that. And I remember having this sort of tug of war with my mum. And the reason why I remember this is because I think I remember sitting at the dining table and there being a day where I I had to kind of finish my food and I had to eat it. 
And there was something around, um, I think my mum realizing that I needed um, a bit more um, coaxing or kindness around that. So what she would do is she would take, so let's say if you had a dish, like a, a, a fish curry, uh, so something like mackerel, which is quite common for us to, to have, um, rice, and you'd have you know a vegetable or a dal or something else on the side. Um, a really common thing to do with kids is you kind of turn it into a little bit of a game. So you get the rice, you turn it in, you squish it into little balls, you put a tiny piece of fish on it, then you'll put a piece of, you know, vegetable, whatever. And then she would lay it out all on the plate. So it, that is how I then got into food that way. But also yeah. a big thing. Yeah, a big thing to offset, let's say how spicy I found things was um which they do a lot with kids is to have a lot of natural yogurt with it and that is something that has still stayed with me and I still love having yogurt with my um with my curry as a on the side but mum was um you know is the type of person and I have to give her credit she was working she's retired now but she worked really long hours and would have to commute from Maidstone into central London where she was working as a civil servant, but she would always cook everything from scratch. Um, and I think that that is something that for sure has stayed with me um, and is something that I still carry into my adult life. But when we then moved to India, um, it became food became something that was less about me eating, you know, on my own at the dining table because uh, maybe I was eating at a different time to my parents. But that then became about how you eat together as, a, as an extended family, because I had so many cousins there, you know, you would go to other people's houses and that extra dimension of food, not just being something that you have as breakfast, lunch and dinner, but about it being something around which your families, um, you know, center around and those big pots of uh, curry that you'd have on the table and also how food is tied into other things like, you know, um, when someone passes away um when when you have a wedding and when someone passes away I mean I remember food being such a it's it was such an integral part of that because what you do for the first anniversary after someone dies is you make all of the dishes that they loved in their life and then everyone in front of a picture of that person you take a spoon of of food and you serve it for them so you serve for the dead you then leave the room you kind of go away and then you all get to basically eat the food that's been prepared what afterwards. A beautiful thing to do, isn't it? Because you I love because, that. Yeah, because there are so many memories associated with why that person loved that dish, the time that you may have made it for them, and it 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 is actually a huge, huge comfort, I think. Um, but yeah, so that that is definitely one of the most memorable things that I remember from being there. Um, my yeah. god I'm so I'm like so like mesmerized by that. I feel like I'm gonna take <laughs> I mean yeah I mean I'm gonna I guess I'm gonna do I mean I guess sort of touching on what you were saying about food not just being about mm. breakfast lunch dinner and kind of getting it in um I I feel the same you know for me it's about the family coming together food is family family is food um and it's that experience, isn't it? It's all the elements coming together that mm. I think is so important. So what were some of the dishes from your childhood that are sort of like some of your, some of like the specialities, the special dishes that you remember that your mum would make? The, you? the 
these are still the dishes that so whenever I go over she will the first thing she'll always ask me is what would you like me to make and um and you then get to you know put your order in and they're still they're still the same dishes that I really loved when I was a kid so I would say she makes a version of biryani which Mm. um uh, I love because she uses a um, the undertone to it. Although te- technically it's not a biryani, it's a, it's a palau. But I called it a biryani when I was a kid, and I will call it a biryani until the day that I die. But the the sort of the underlying masala of it is um, it's what she calls green masala. So it's a mixture of you know coriander, um, green chilies, tomatoes, ginger, garlic, lots of other things, and that's the base of the dish. So that was always a dish that we would have on special occasions. Um, or, you know, if one of us uh, requested it. Um, there are uh, some Mangalore, which is our ancestral homeland. So that's a, um, it's now actually, I was about to say it's a small place. It's no longer a small place because, you know, globalization. But it's, um, it was a, a sleepy place by the sea where you would get really fresh fish. So for us, um, for my family, uh, and definitely, you know, for, for people that are in that part of the country, fish um, and seafood is such a, a a mainstay of what you would have so um and I've still never really tasted mackerel in the same way as as the one that we would get when we would go over mm. there we would have things like mackerel curries uh, again the base uh, of the curry would be you know tamarind um it would be uh, ginger and um other ones were like chicken curry so mangalorean chicken curry which has a coconut base to it and so on so it, it, I would say coconut definitely was a feature, but when I have tasted dishes from other neighboring states, for example, like Kerala, for us personally, the dishes that we have in my family aren't so heavily coconut based. Like they might have that right. in them. Okay. But to me anyway, to my palate, it is not so overpowering because I'm not, I'm not a massive fan when something tastes, you know, predominantly of coconut. Um, but yeah, so, and I would say, you know, a typical meal would be a lot of white rice or um, we would call it red rice, which is, um, I, I would say, like less processed rice that you would have. There would be a dal, there might be like a piece of fried fish or whatever. But um, growing up there, you become very aware, firstly, of things like resources. So, you know, having an endless amount of meat and fish is, you know, when you, when it's put on your plate, you're kind of you know that there's a finite amount that you're going to have and so you enjoy it and so on and there isn't like an endless supply of of food that's coming but one of the things that my mum did when we were out there was uh, she took me to the main market that was in Bangalore called Russell Market and it was this huge place I mean maybe it's not huge now but when I was seven to eight you know it seemed like an absolute um, huge cave of a place and you would go and buy you know your lemons from the lemon seller and you would go to the butcher's place and see them sort of chop up the meat and so on so I think that actually being there by her side and haggling for um you know to to see haggling for things seeing how you tell what's really fresh and what's not um that I think definitely was a massive part of my education of understanding food and also um being able to just pick things out you know that you want to make for your food that isn't necessarily or neatly packaged for you uh, in a supermarket. I feel really strongly about this. Um, 
my my husband's very into like having things delivered whereas mm. i'm i'm still a bit old school with things like i still keep a file of facts i don't put anything in my phone and i'm i'm very much like i like to touch and feel my produce and also yep. like i just first of all number one i like to touch and see what i'm actually buying and two i really don't need like hundreds of plastic bags just because i've bought an avocado and a banana i mean mm. it's just you know let's take it back to like, you know, back in the day, you just put it all into one big bag and, you know, go on your merry way. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Um, it sounds like a quite idyllic childhood. I, I wondered what it was like when you came back to the UK after spending that sort of five year, five or so years mm. in India. What was the Indian food like that you were experiencing back in the UK I mean obviously your mum was I assume was still cooking but did you sort of eat out I mean was it the same was it not <laughs> I mean the thing is I would say growing up in India um, it wasn't idyllic in the sense that uh, so we had a situation where my dad was in the UK and my mum my sister and I were in India because we my dad had to uh, try and sell the house that they had in the UK and there was a recession and it was all really tough and then it right. ended up getting drawn out and then the end result of that was that he, they decided that you know we couldn't really live in two different countries that we all had to be together as a family so that was not having him there for most of the year was really really tough um, so actually in one sense you know us being re reunited as a family was incredible but on the other hand um it felt like being back in the UK it felt like a massive part of our senses were just cut off and by that I mean things like you know going to school in India going to school and seeing people that looked just like me and not realizing that that was a thing until I came here and I was surrounded by completely the opposite and not just that it was completely the opposite, but that that difference was noticed and you were made to feel that that was a noticeable difference. Um, food was a huge component of that. So, you know, um, one of the things which I find on the one hand, I'm so glad that we've got the situation now where Indian food is so beloved it is something that, you know, people without question treat themselves with, you know, if they get a takeaway or whatever, or are just genuinely interested in learning how to cook themselves. But it wasn't like that um, when I when I came back to England, which would have been the early 90s. You know, the smell of Indian food, the, the fear that your clothes might smell of it and you might go into school, you might go into a scenario and someone picks on that and points that out was something that you were terrified about all the time. Like it wasn't a cool thing that you ate Indian food back then, you know? And my mum, uh, throughout it all, again, like, you know, through a working job and whatnot, uh, would come home, would cook, um, and so on. We never we never got Indian takeaways. That was never a thing. I think in even like present day, if I suggested such a thing to her, she would just give me such a salty look. <laughs> it would just be unacceptable, basically. So, um, so we, we didn't do that. And I think that as a, as a result, um, whenever, and I would just say, even in my adult life, it is not a food that I, that I get from other places. So I don't, I don't order takeaways from Indian places. And when I meet up with someone for dinner, if they suggest going out for Indian food, 
if they really feel strongly about it, I'll kind of go along with it, but it won't be my first choice. And that isn't because I don't think that there aren't amazing chefs out there. Of course they are. But, you know, my experience has been, and I know this is such a cliche, my experience in the main has been, I can make it better at home and all my mother can. And so if I'm going to eat out, eat out, what I, where I actually want to eat are the places that have a buildup of South Asian communities. So like places like, for example, in London, if you're looking at Southall or um, East Ham or whatever, and where you go somewhere where they don't have Michelin stars and mm. it could just be as basic as you like, but it will be the most amazing food. Mm. But those are not the places that, you know, your, your central London mates want to really go to when they're talking about going out for dinner. So for me, I'm just like, it's, it's not something I really want to compromise on. And it has been in the minority that I've gone to a place and I've really been dazzled and amazed and really glad that I went out and I paid money for it versus making it at home. I honestly couldn't agree more. My mother is Iranian. So mm. I'm basically how you feel about Indian food is how I feel about Persian food. So for me, the best food, of course, is at home. There are a couple places that I would go to in London that I, I do think are genuinely very good Iranian restaurants. Mm. But if I know that it's good at home and it's better at home, why why am I going out for it? But same as you, I have friends who want to go out for Iranian food. So, you know, but I make the decision on where we go. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm very particular. I, I don't know if you're like this. Like, If you do eventually say, okay, fine, we'll go out for Indian food, are you very much like there are certain restaurants or places that I'm going to go, like we're not going to wherever you've just suggested. Like I'm a bit picky about that. I'm like, no, I'm sorry. Like if we're going to do this, we're going to do it properly. Yeah. Uh, I mean, yes. But having said that, I think that in my friendship circles, I tend to be the person that has an opinion about where, <laughs> uh, where, where we go anyway. And, um, and because, you know, most people, unless they feel really strongly about it, as you and I do, are happy to defer that. They, they are happy to defer the, re the painstaking research, the going online exactly. to look at the menu. Because I really love that. And, and yeah. I really enjoy that. And also because more often than not, um, I, don't <laughs> I don't trust other people to Nor do, do the due diligence. <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah. Absolutely. Because at one time, um, so I'm in a, I have a friendship circle of um, three guy mates from university. And the, and one of them, the one time we let him have the autonomy to pick where we like, he picked some American diner that served us like fluorescent orange chicken wings. And it was so bad. He hasn't been allowed to pick a place ever since. And I think that that was about 15 years ago. Yeah. So he knows his place yeah. now. He just he gets does. told he where does. to go and what time to be there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Moving it sort of into adult life, there's lots of angles that I sort of want to go with this chat, but I just want to just briefly touch on your career because you obviously got into the industry sort of pre-social media madness. Did you always want to write? Was that always sort of on the cards for you? Yeah, that was a very early need and want and I would say that the earliest um, record sorry I'm saying this like you know it's a caveman fossil that someone's come across the earliest record of me saying I wanted to be a writer <laughs> is um, is from a um, a diary that I had when I was about seven yeah oh wow yeah so it's it's something that I have always loved 
not just um not just because i don't know i mean obviously i do it as a job now and that has a different dimension to it but it is something that i genuinely take great pleasure from actually doing even if it's creative writing that no one else is really going to see so there is something really nice about knowing i think what your vocation is going to be when you're young but the uh, sort of uh, the less glamorous side of it is when you are in the first i would say probably beginning stages to 10 years of your career it pays really really badly so you have to kind of work through it and hope that it's all going to come right which mm. i i feel like it did slash does has well it looks like it from the outside it's, it's doing Thank pretty you. well which seamlessly brings me on to the fact that you um are about to launch your your third book which is a non-fiction novel called stronger which i'm gonna allow you to kind of discuss it but it's sort of about women's mental physical strength so what is different about this book compared to your previous? So my previous books um, for a potted history of people who are wondering who on earth I am is um, that they very much focused on mental health. And a big part of that was um, when I was at HuffPost. So this would have been in the last year, year and a half of me working there. Um, my my husband uh, passed away in 2015 and one of the things that came out of that because it was very unexpected and he was dealing with a lot of you know big mental health issues um which included depression and addiction and I felt that I had to write a book that would either help people who had been in a similar situation that I had been in um as well as offer some sort of resonance to people who had been in the same situation that he was in and um, and, and basically be able to highlight some of the things that really needed tackling at that time. And I know we've moved on in the conversation in terms of mental health um, so much so, but back then it wasn't really, you know, widely um, spoken about. And the first two books were were about that, and it was a mixture of sort of personal journey, but also in my capacity as a journalist, interviewing people and talking to people to try and actually put some science and backing to it. And the third book, and I never really thought I would be writing a third book, but the third book came about as part of a process of trying to, I think, deal with the aftermath of my husband Rob dying and the gap that was just left behind by him, which was realizing that I didn't have my life partner and from a very practical point of view that there were things, even things like, you know, doing stuff around the house that I had just always thought he would be around to do. And mm. previously to him being in my life had always asked, you know, my dad or my male friends to do. And so that kind of just got me, it started off this whole journey around actually trying to become physically stronger. So trying to train in a gym to become physically stronger, which very, um, you know, as a math, uh, just by chance led me to do weights and so on. And then that led me to uh, take up lifting weights competitively. Um, so I competitively am a power lifter, um, which sounds like... Which I'm like... going to get onto in a minute. <laughs> Because sure. I'm very interested by that conversation. It is my favorite subject, so I'd be very mm. happy to go into that. But <laughs> but basically, throughout this entire kind of reconfiguration of strength, um, 
number one, it was something that offered a lot of um, calm and respite and routine when I was grieving very heavily. But number two, as the years kind of went on, I realized that actually what this made me feel like was very, very confident. Um, it wasn't just about being confident in the gym or in a in a sort of a physical sense, but how I how that then translated into how I carried myself with work and how I felt in other spaces where I maybe felt like the minority, which is kind of um, happens a lot. Um, and it, it was one of those things where I just thought, but this isn't just me. This isn't just, you know, I'm not a unicorn here. There are lots of other people slash women who feel like this. And then when I kind of like delved into the statistics around it, and I realized that for many of us, when we were girls growing up, that there is such a massive drop off in physical activity. Um, and that's also a time when our levels of self-esteem, our confidence drops off. And when you then look, at completely the opposite end of that and you look at women who let's say had a positive experience with sport or physical activity and how much better that made them or more successful that made them in their careers whether it's things like leadership and so on I was like actually but there is a really big case to be made here for how you can make that more robust for girls uh, in terms of why are they disengaging with physical activity? What is wrong with the way that we're teaching them about that? Because there is something wrong with the way that we're teaching them about that. Um, how can they be allowed to do it in a way where they feel comfortable and safe? And then more importantly, uh, if you are an adult, how do we unpick all of the bad experiences that we maybe had in PE or as younger women? And how can we kind Me. of then rebuild? <laughs> yeah, I mean, he was a nightmare, honestly. So how do you rebuild that? And I was like, yeah. the case should be made for how you rebuild that, right? Because there are there are really good things that can come to you if we can kind of recondition ourselves around all of this, you know, terrible stuff that we've been brought up with of, you know, what women and girls should look like and, you know, access to strength and capabilities and all of that kind of stuff. Well, interestingly, this also feeds into something um, <laughs> you posted um, a few days ago, um, which I think when this airs will be perhaps a couple weeks ago, um, which really triggered me, but in a good way. Uh, okay. You put up a post uh, talking about diet culture, which is something that... I have, well, essentially have had to battle my whole life. Um, mm -hmm. We're similar age, uh, you know, it's about this importance we place on numbers, size, how we look, what's deemed acceptable, what's been sort of thrown at us that is this sort of ideal standard of beauty and, and, and all of that. And, you know, I think you were quite open in your post about talking about you were measuring your yourself up for some clothing or something and, and whatever came of it triggered you in some way. And, you know, we need to talk about this because how are we going to shift this mindset? You know, you've just spoken mm -hmm. about your new book, Stronger, and about how, you know, our experience as children uh, as kids uh, in school in PE I was that one forging notes from my mum to say that I couldn't do PE because I didn't want to play hockey because I didn't like it I didn't feel confident I couldn't run I, like all of that stuff you know like you I don't know if, if it's the same but I found my sort of exercise journey in my adult life and mm -hmm. you know we the, 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 the conversation 
has changed so much, but how do we get out of still this little rut that we're in? So one of the biggest things uh, in the book is that this is reframing physical activity um, and fitness. And that could be, you know, uh, whatever your abilities are, but reframing it where the incentive and the motivator is about joy and about how your body likes and wants to move versus weight loss. And weight loss is something that, you know, we we most of us have experienced a sense of knowing what that's about from a very very young age you know um i think it was like um yeah we 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 know what that's like so i think it was like dean asher smith was talking to an 8 year old about um you know what she what she wants to do and how she feels about because she goes into schools a lot and this eight-year-old said that something along the lines of, yeah, I, I want to do fitness because I want to lose weight. And this is someone who is eight. This is not an uncommon story. We receive these messages from, um, you know, our family members, from our extended family, from magazines, TV, and so on, from a very young age. So reconditioning yourself around that, it, for me anyway, is an ongoing work. I am for sure... Um, a lot better than I used to be, but there will still be times and days where I'm not so sure about things because every day I have to rebuild myself and my idea of self-worth because every day I am confronted with a world that has a very narrow idea of what fitness or beauty is or, or whatever. And sometimes that can be exhausting on the days when you just don't have quite as much energy, you know, mm. or like I referenced in that post, something that triggers you, like getting measured for clothes. Um, for me, the way that I've reframed my sense of self is around what I am capable of actually doing. So it is why, for example, I don't really use a weighing scale. Like I have not weighed myself for, I would say, maybe a year, possibly, because I don't need to. There's nothing on that scale that is going to tell me anything. The only time... I might need to get back on that scale and maybe the distinction is important to point out here is I do a performance-based sport. So um, one of the things that's part of that sport is that we compete in weight categories and it just might be that I just want a sense of what category I'll be competing in because that will tell me how competitive I can be and so on. But the fact is, is that if I can do the things that I really enjoy doing, um, if that gives me a sense of self-worth and self-esteem, if I know that, you know, I'm healthy and that I've had my blood pressure measured and my cholesterol and all, and all of that is fine, I don't really see what, a, there's nothing else that can kind of inform that. And I guess if you look at diet culture, which um, is definitely tackled in the book, because diet culture is so entwined with fitness. And I think Tally Rye, who is... Um, a PT and a personality on Instagram I absolutely love because she promotes the idea of intuitive movement. Um, you know, she said uh, she did this um, uh, story or reel, which looks at, you know, uh, basically weight loss and fitness are two separate endeavors. You know, they are two separate endeavors. But for most of us, we think they're the same thing and they're not. Mm. Um, and it doesn't mean that you can't have goals like let's say if you for aesthetic reasons or you just want to whatever it doesn't mean that you can't have like goals that are linked to weight loss if that's what you want personally those aren't my goals I don't find them to be emotionally or mentally healthy um but that should be separated out from whatever fitness is because fitness should be about a lot of other things first and foremost than it should be about 
uh, weight loss. And I think that when all of that kind of t is tied up together, um, if we don't detangle it, if we don't unravel it, it then means that when you then go through transitions in your life, which all of us will go through, whether that is, you know, from the time that we started our period to uh, childbirth, to going through the menopause, to being ill, to being chronically ill, whatever those things might be, it then means that it's very hard to navigate, to, to even have a sense of self if you haven't untangled those two things. Because, for example, Hannah, you know, when I had... Um, long COVID last year and I couldn't I couldn't weight train like I couldn't really do much beyond walking I had to work out what my value system was and what what were the things that my friends and family loved about me like what did they admire what did they respect about me and if you write that stuff down on a piece of paper it has got nothing to do with what you look like. It has got nothing to do with how big or small you might be but we live in a society that assigns moral value to body size we live in a society that makes you feel like you know if you only did x y and z if you were only this size you know this like uh pot of like emotional gold is waiting for you and you're finally going to be so happy and freeing yourself and it's nonsense because i've lived on this planet for 40 years and never once did i get to that pot of gold the mm. only time i got there was when i put aside that fixation with, you know, how small my body should be, like what size it should be. And I just thought, you know what, let's just actually see what my body is capable of, like how strong can it actually get? What can it actually do? It's really interesting. I, I feel like you've actually hit the nail on the head, which may be the most obvious thing, but this separating the idea of fitness with this sort of idea of weight loss or, or whatever it might be, um, I've definitely been guilty. I, I, I probably, I probably am. I probably had the, a conversation with myself this morning when I was mm. exercising. You know, um, you know. Interestingly, a couple of years ago, I ran the London Marathon for charity, po probably for myself because I was that very overweight young child who could not run, and so hence was writing, you know, notes to get out of hockey. And you know, it was a real personal journey. And. I remember off the back of running the marathon, my body shape completely changed because, you know, let's be honest, you are throwing yourself into extreme training. And I personally don't think that my body is actually built for long distance running. But on the back of it, I obviously lost a bit of weight. Okay, cool. But I actually didn't like my body shape because I'd lost my, my defining curves which is kind of what I knew myself as, whether I liked them every day or not, that was who Hannah was. Yeah. So then I, then I went through the process of actually building those up again, which like you're saying with your powerlifting, um, your weightlifting, I, I never thought in a million years that I'd be going into the gym to build up. And it was then yeah. that I realized there's a real big disconnect here. Absolutely. I mean, also the case could be made around that, that, if you are someone, as I am, and I definitely identify as this, who believes in gender equality, um, you know, has spent most of my life working towards that, how can I, and it took a really long time to unravel this, how can I live by the belief that as a woman, I should be small, and yet in the same breath, think that it is perfectly fine that men have more right to being bigger and being muscly and no gender has the monopoly on muscle yet 
<laughs> we exercise in a way, we um, restrict ourselves in a way that works towards that exactly that mm. ideal. Mm. And um, and and it's it's for me, it felt like a madness when I realized that because I realized the number of times that I had physically limited myself from getting stronger and lifting more weight because I was worried about looking bigger because I didn't want my shoulders to look too broad. Like who cares? Like just because I think at the time also what, what was happening was I was wearing clothes that were starting to feel quite tight because because basically mainstream clothes that you get on your average high street are not geared slash built for women let's say who lift weights they, they just aren't I can yeah. I can hand on my heart they aren't so you're kind of wearing these clothes that feel really uncomfortable you don't really know um you know what to do because you it feels wrong like it feels like oh I shouldn't you know uh, I shouldn't buy different clothes or whatever everything should still fit the same and the reason why I describe it as a madness is because you're, you're you are changing your body because you are applying a very specific form of training for a very specific reason but yet you're expecting everything else to say the same and that's just not going to happen you know that there's a reason why they call it reconditioning your body because the, it's it's changing its shape so one of the things i kind of just let go of was just realizing that I actually had to accommodate my body and stop trying to punish it and push it into things that felt really uncomfortable. And I just remember, and there's the, there's a post on my Instagram um, that I did around this was just sort of remembering, you know, a family member saying to me uh, when I was kind of in my early twenties, you know, whatever you do, don't buy clothes like in the size up because that means you'll then move up to that size and then you'll be stuck there forever. And it's just like, but so what if I move up to that size? Why does mm. that, what, why is that the big fear? Why is that the worst thing that could possibly happen? And so for me, like my life's work is around how you have neutrality around these things because, and, and you know, removing that morality from it, removing those values of good and bad that we've we've come to believe because I just don't think it really serves us very well. No, absolutely. I mean, you've mentioned it now a few times, um, your weightlifting, powerlifting yeah. journey. Is there a difference between weightlifting and powerlifting? Um, powerlifting is is the name for what I do because weightlifting could right. also refer to things like, let's say, Olympic weightlifting, um, okay. other forms. But yeah. So um, how? <laughs> I haven't done powerlifting. I, well, no, I've tried it a bit in the gym. I think it's amazing. But like Yay. I'm not, I'm not in a position that I would probably go and do it by myself. I would do it with like a friend, or like I've got a friend actually who's who's a PT who I was doing it with. Sort of talk to me about that journey because I'm really into this. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I don't think it's something I would have ever sought out. I don't think it's. I, I don't think I would have come across a YouTube video and gone, "Woo, okay, I'm going to try that out." Mm. It it was just literally chance that I happened to be in a gym that was putting on an unofficial powerlifting competition and they were looking for people to sign up for it. And when I was in the weight section of the gym, which um, was was okay, but you just it was just frustrating that you would never really see that many women in that section because I just don't think they felt particularly welcomed in this specific gym that I was going to it's not the gym that I currently go to at the moment um but the guy who was trying to sign people up basically said look if you 
if you sign up because he said the name of it and I was like what I've never heard of that before and it sounds terrifying and no and he said it well if you (laughs) if you do it it might actually encourage other women to do it as well. And I remember at the time thinking, you know what, I would love to see more women in this section because if there were more women in this section, then I would feel better about things and less intimidated. So um, at the time I was training in a different, in a, so I belonged to two gyms basically. And I, I was training in a different gym with a, with my trainer who has also become a very good friend of mine. His name is Jack. And I didn't, Jack and I were just getting to know each other. So I didn't know much about what he did, you know, in his personal time. Um, and I said, oh, can you believe, can you believe that someone asked me to sign up to this powerlifting competition? And I didn't know that Jack was a professional powerlifter. And he was like, oh, <laughs> Oh wow. welcome yeah so he said I think that that would be an amazing idea and I think that you'll really enjoy it and he helped me through the entire thing and he said oh you'll have loads of fun and I was just it was so inconceivable I just thought I think you're already saying that because you do it but I don't know if I'm gonna actually find it fun and I did the competition and it was so much fun mainly because I'm not a person who likes competing in fitness you know uh same as you I had a bad experience of it at PE I was always the worst always like one of the last picked um I found the the clothes that you had to wear in PE like you know horrendous (laughs) did you have to wear gym knickers uh yeah uh I, I think I had to wear those in primary school but then I used to have all these like awful skirts and like oh just it was just horrible horrible experience the whole thing just needs yeah. to just have a flamethrower aimed at it. But it's, it. So, it it's just, so sort of yeah. like centered to like the like the last century sort of like I don't know. I feel like like an Enid Blyton novel. <laughs> yeah, and I'm like at a time when, especially when girls are getting their periods and feel you know really uncomfortable with that yeah. adjustment. I'm like, oh hey, you guys thought it was a great idea to put us in really skimpy flimsy mm. clothing but yeah. you know I just was not a fan no, but yeah I sorry I digress so um so yeah so I I think that being in an atmosphere where things were competitive and I was and actually were fun I just thought oh okay this is a re-education of everything that I thought I knew um but also it was fun because it's very um you see different representations of strength so you understand that strength isn't necessarily someone who looks like a mainstream fitness instagrammer you know that actually comes in all shapes and sizes you can't tell how strong someone is just from looking at their physique um but also people just help you out if you kind of don't really know what you're doing they help you out and they don't Mm -hmm. do it in a really patronizing way so that sparked this whole thing of oh my god this is fun I want to just keep doing it and then when you embarked on it how did that sort of um, affect your eating because I know you mentioned at the beginning that you're having quite a high protein Mm. breakfast sort of obviously you know that lovely word diet coming back again but in a positive way sort of how does your diet sort of change and accommodate what you're doing in the gym It's a complicated one because I found that first, I would say, six to eight months of it really, um, really cathartic because I think that you're eating on the one hand, it's joy because you're eating in a way to fuel your workouts. And 
previously I'd always been used to working from you know a place of restriction as like many people are in terms of um, you know oh I've got to go do that exercise to work off that donut I've just eaten and so on and that you know the endless system and checks that people do around food and so to go into a place where you have with weightlifting you you can't you can't kind of, you know, fool it. If you go into a heavy deadlift session, not having fueled properly, not having eaten properly, you just won't be able to lift it. It's it's mm. really as simple as that. So that connection between your mind, your body and actually eating properly, that was a very important lesson for me to learn to actually sound so simple, but to understand that um, food is fuel you literally need it to keep you alive and also to just enable you to do more if that's what you want to do. And that can be a really um, nurturing, healing relationship around food. But on the other hand, um, trying to sort of work my brain around the science of how you build muscle, and it is it is harder for women to build muscle than it is for men, um, trying to work my my head around that was really was really hard because what I had started doing just before all of this was I'd started a journey of learning a lot more about intuitive eating and mindful eating and I felt like well how do I how do I make sure how do I eat more protein and how do I keep an eye on that and how do I also intuitively eat and how can I do all of that at the same time and it just felt like there were a lot of voices kind of crowding my head and what I've come to realize, uh, definitely now, I would say, is having spent the last 10 months of not being well, I I intuitively ate during that time. So I, you know, that the way that I ate was um, gravitating towards the most natural balance of food that my body wanted. And now that I'm starting to train again and I want to kind of rebuild that muscle that I've lost, I know that I do need to adjust what I'm eating to make sure that just if anything, to make sure that I'm getting enough protein to actually build that muscle. Yeah. Now, some people may say that those things are completely at odds with one another. But the way that I view it is that my goal here is performative. It's not necessarily aesthetic. So really what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to eat in a way to help me get those performance goals that might not work for everyone. Like if for people, for example, with a history of eating disorders, that really might not work and it might not be something that they want to do at all. And I'm not advocating that for anyone. But what I've realized at the end of all of this is that I can intuitively eat when I want to. Like I have that in my in my kind of, you know, toolbox. But I also know how to, to eat for performance-based goals. And I can do that in a way that doesn't make me feel like super stressed out, doesn't make me feel like I'm um, losing a grip on things. But that has taken a lot of work. And ultimately, it's realizing what you need to do for yourself. And if there is something that's making you feel really frazzled and unhappy, then it's time to look at whether doing that thing or eating in that way or whatever it is, is actually what your mind and your body needs right now so what would be like a normal day in food for you it depends on the phase that I'm in so if for example um I'm intuitively eating that could that could be anything but the breakfast usually stays the same because I I really like having eggs in the morning um and I like some form of like whether it's like ham or, or salmon or whatever if I'm training the way I am at the moment which is that I'm progressively jumping up in weights and getting stronger then it would definitely be the breakfast that I told you about it would be um you know a green juice which would kind of be 50% veg 50% fruit um lunch would definitely be making sure 
um, that I may be having something with rice in it, maybe a bit of chicken, um, or maybe like if I'm not having rice, it will be like potatoes or something like that. But just making sure that I have like a, a kind of a full nourished meal that's got a bit of everything in there, but definitely not protein. Um, I love fruit, so I'll always have a couple of pieces of fruit, might have some protein shake evening will tend to be like a heavier meal so like last night what did I have I had this um this is one of my mum's recipes it's a grilled so she takes shoulder steaks you cut them up into pieces mm. uh marinate it in yeah soy sauce uh, malt vinegar um clove cinnamon chili cumin salt mm. yeah you mix it all up uh so I've I've kind of got that so I'll grill that um and I'll have that with some dal with spinach uh, some rice and some green beans that I sort of toss with some mustard seeds and uh, it's this uh, kind of white lentil that we call urd dal so yeah oh my god that sounds incredible <laughs> just a casual Thanks. Monday at Porner's gaff <laughs> yeah. I know my mum my mum always loves to hear what I'm making for myself and she's like <laughs> Wow. I think she really loves it. She really loves the like because I mean this is the thing. I think it surprises people, but I'm like just because I live on my own doesn't mean I can't Absolutely. make an occasion of food. I love Absolutely. I love cooking for other people, but I love cooking for myself yeah. as well. So aside from that yeah. banger, um, what are some <laughs> of your specialities? Um, so I would say for sure it is um, meat. So it's lamb. It's a lamb dish with potatoes. And it's a recipe again for my mum. And and you can, I tend to cook um, shoulder because it just tends to be tastier because of the fat in it. Um, but you can use a variation where you use chops. So uh, not, I would say cutlets because there's just not that much on them, but chops, lamb chops. And um, I make them in a tomatoey based curry. So mm. um, you kind of would get, you know, chopped tomatoes in a tin. Um, you'd cook that with some bay leaf. You would then maybe put some tomato puree in there. Um, similar combination of spices, actually. So clove, cinnamon. Um, uh, I was about to say dunia. That's the word for coriander. Um, coriander, cumin, um, turmeric. And you basically let it bubble on a slow um flame you know for for a while uh just to get all of that kind of just really nice and the sauce needs to get a bit darker in color and then you put the lamb and sort of I like to use really big like doorstop of potatoes in there so like chunks of potato mm. um and then you kind of like cook all of that up put a dollop of yogurt in it and then one of the things I love to do if I am ma- and I tend to make this for guests with I tend to make it with chops for guests is that I will then um, take the curry, put it in a baking tray, and then finish it off in the oven. So it just gets ever so slightly more intense. It is so oh delicious. God. Well, I've it got an me, idea yeah. for your for your fourth book, <laughs> which is going to end up being a cookery book. <laughs> well, I've been I have been haranguing my mum because her her recipes are so they're so specific to her, and I haven't really tasted. Um, her type of food you know in other people's parents homes or restaurants or whatever and and also my mum I know everyone says that their mum is good cook but even for you know um, the the women in our family who and the women in our family are the ones predominantly who are uh, people who cook um, she is one of the best of the best so Mm. the way that yeah so 
So her recipes, and she will always go, oh, yes, I've decided to, you know, write down my recipes. It's not going to, they're not going to go anywhere. So maybe I'll have to do that, Hannah, because I think they deserve to be seen. We need it. We all need it. (laughs) We need this from you. Aside, uh, well, no, when uh, the world changes somewhat, where are some of your favorite Mm. restaurants in London or around the world? Um, I mean, I love eating out in London and I love trying new places. Um, so I would say probably the areas that I always go back to the most are Soho and Fitzrovia, mainly because I think that they really excel in number one, a variety of different cuisines. Number two, they also do a lot of small plate stuff. And I love small plate stuff because it just allows mm. you to try so many different dishes um in a way that you just can't you know if you're just ordering a starter and a main um i would say in terms of restaurants um 10 greek street is a restaurant that i really love that i would love to go back to because i feel like they do british food in a way that honestly i i just eat so much when i'm in there and it's just the most gorgeous glorious food um so that is first on my list but the the one issue that i would say is that with a lot of restaurants in the area most of it's no bookings so you kind of luckily i'm freelance so you get you can go early doors yeah, but you yeah. know when i worked in an office it was an absolute nightmare i um, i understand why restaurants do it but i really have a huge issue with queuing yeah same because I, 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 I just don't want to do it no yeah. and then I get into a bad mood and the yeah. whole experience is ruined for everybody yeah. involved and <laughs> yeah but the sorry the one the other restaurant because I go I used to go here almost like once a month I think is Honey and Co which is round the back of Fitzrovia my oh my favorite. god I've actually had um I've actually had Sarit and Itamar on the podcast in my first season oh, they're so honestly, gorgeous that is one of the best places yeah for me in London yeah. Oh, I love it there. I know. We should go there. I feel like we'll yes. meet in person one day and we're going to go there. We're yes, going to go for lunch. Honestly. There. To be honest, yeah. I love Honey and Co for their big breakfast. Oh, the shak sugar is. Oh, oh my God. Yeah. But also, it's you get so much. Yeah. <laughs> it's incredible. Yeah. They, they've done it well. <laughs> Something that um, you actually sent to me uh, before we recorded, which was so beautiful um you made a comment about the fact that there's something so powerful between the correlation of food memory and the imprint of someone and so you were mentioning that you know you have I think some of Rob's recipes and one of them were was his um, infamous pork meatballs Mm. which I think you've had to kind of figure out along the way how he made them can you elaborate on that? Because they're, they're, I, I sort of sat on it for a bit and I was like, God, I'd never really thought of it in that way. Mm. Um, and I sort of, I, I, I believe that as well. Yeah, I mean, when we started dating, I, I, I'd never dated someone who cooked before. Um, so the fact that he was someone who loved to cook um, took such joy in just going to the super, but cooked in a very different way to me. So um, very freestyle is the word that I would use. So he'd go to a supermarket and if there was something that he saw that he liked, he it, he did, wouldn't ever go there with a recipe in mind. He would just pick the things and then he would go to the spices section and then he would pick what he wanted that dish to taste like. So that's the point that he would operate from. Okay. 
And over the years, there were definitely, you know, staples, like certain dishes that he would experiment and just make, you know, as many of us do over and over again. But very much um, a, a big thing about him was because he also loved to have people over. And one of the things that all of us just remember very, um, very dearly about him was that our home was was a welcome place for anyone that kind of wanted to come over. Um, and I just remember one of the dishes that he would make uh, a lot, which I loved was this pork meatball recipe. Um, and I wouldn't really chat to him while he cooked. Um, I mean, sometimes we would do that, but generally, you know, we just, each of us, the type of cooks that we were, we like to just be able to get on with it. And then when everything's served up, that's when we'd kind of have a conversation. And this recipe, like... I have to say, so after he passed away, it's just not something, you know, you really think about uh, because you're dealing with so much other stuff. You're dealing with, you know, very um, difficult things like the paperwork. And then obviously you're dealing with the emotional load of it and so on. And then you realize that there is this whole aspect to this person that was so much a part of who they were, but at no point do you really have a record of it? You don't, because, you know, no one really thinks about, like, maybe unless you're, like, you know, uh, elderly, about leaving recipes for your children and so on. And, and and he was 39 when he died. So this wasn't ever a conversation that we had. And I just remember thinking, God, like, I loved that recipe. And I remember that recipe because, you know, the, the overtones of it were, I remember ginger, I remember oyster sauce, soy mm. sauce, five spice but I couldn't tell you how to like because five spice is also if you get the like ratios of that wrong can just be you know not yeah, I've done not it a many a time <laughs> mm-hmm. we all have yeah so I one of his friends um Anushka and I we were talking about this and I just said you know god I really wish I had that recipe like I've, I've got a craving for it for some reason and she said hang on do you mean this and it's like the most shonkily written down, like, you know, exactly how I would expect him to write down a recipe. Yeah. Wasn't even really a recipe. It was like, you know, just a collection of words. And I was like, oh my God, this is it. So basically I took that that note and tried to kind of work out the ratio of things and so on. And when I was making that dish, this is going to sound nuts, but may- maybe, I don't know. But when I was making that dish, like I felt like he was there. Like I felt like I was, cause so we have this word. Um, this is a word that my mother uses in our language, which is andaji, which basically is around the intuition that you have around spices. So for example, if someone was to ask me, can you give me the measurements for a curry or whatever? I can give you the measurements, but fundamentally the the piece, the missing piece to that will be your knowledge of just, you just know, you will know. And it, it, it it's a bigger concept beyond, you know, the measurements of a teaspoon. And that, and that andaji is something that when I was making those meatballs, I just felt that kind of like um, that nudge of like how to do things. And when I put them in the oven and I took them out and I was like, oh, they do not look like how I remember him kind of making them. I mean, the sauce did because the sauce is something you do separate. You reduce it down, you know, um, but the meatballs just look really funky. And I just thought, <laughs> oh, God, I've just messed this up. But then I had them and 
it was exactly like how he made them. I mean, honestly, it was, it wasn't emotional. Like as in, I wasn't crying or anything. It just felt like it's, it was so healing. It was like this bit that had just been missing for all the years since he'd passed away was just kind of there. And it felt like the biggest gift. And I then realized what I had done wrong with the meatballs and why they looked that way. And now I've now fixed it and I've tweaked it. But it was the most... What had you it done It was wrong? a gift. So what I had done wrong <laughs> was uh, with the bread... So you, you're supposed to squish the meatballs up and then you're supposed to um, basically put, put breadcrumbs uh, in them. But what I had done the first time around was I mixed the breadcrumbs in with the actual mixture. So what I did the next time round mm. was... And I also changed the type of breadcrumbs. So I got panko breadcrumbs instead so that they just got a bit crispier. So I just yeah. took the ball and I actually just rolled it in it so that the breadcrumb actually just sat on the outside. And that oh, made them... Oh, nice. Okay. So yeah. it kind of like cases the meat. Yep. Ooh, yeah. okay. Yeah, it was so nice. Honestly, oh. it was so nice. I've made I'm it so many that. times since then. <laughs> that yeah. sounds amazing. Do you know what I love? You've mentioned two things mm. here, especially this, like we're just talking about now, this sort of like the memory and the imprint of a person through their recipes and their cooking. And then that really beautiful sort of um, sort of cultural reference you mentioned about sort of um, within your culture when someone passes that on their first anniversary, you sort of feed them the food and um there's something very sort of meaningful behind those and i feel like it's sort of given me the idea of food in a really different different way yeah i, I think because also when it's the first anniversary because we did the we did this for rob and my mom you know cooked everything that that he loved her to make for him is that the first anniversary is such a it's such a tough one as as are all of the first that you end up having in that year whether it's you know that person's birthday um you know significant dates and so on and what food allows you to do is it's a bridge between this really complicated heavy thing that's inside of your chest that you feel around the anniversary but you're connecting it to a time when they were alive and that that only usually is ever a joyful experience so what happens is Yes, you're deeply grieving. Yes, you know, it feels, um, it, it, there's so much sorrow attached to it and you wish that they were there. But the food allows you to have a conversation and to recall, you know, that time or an anecdote that otherwise you might find a bit difficult to dredge up. So I think one of the things that my mum made were um, there were these spare ribs that she would get from her local butcher and um and we kind of the, the ribs are suspiciously large in size but you know rob really <laughs> rob really loved them and he was also i think the only one of us that could eat like like i at best can maybe handle one of them and i think he yeah. ate like i don't know two or three in one go <laughs> and so that ended up being a you know an anecdote that my mom told and then we talk about you know something else and so and so it just ends up it ends up softening what's going on because when that is taking place all you can see is the end all you can yeah. see is this pain that you're all left behind with and it just reminds you that they were a person who was alive and who gave a lot to your life and that can that is a very healing thing I think and it's mm. wonderful that food can do that I end my conversations with a few quick fire questions are you ready 
Oh, okay. So, my favorite snack of all time is a packet of crisps. What is your favorite flavor of crisps and why? Monster Munch pickled onion because oh my God. you never... Yeah. Oh, are you? Finally. Uh, we're now in, what, the fourth season and finally someone has said it. <laughs> has someone not said... What is wrong with people? It's like the oh king my God. of crisps. The queen Honor, of crisps. These are, these are my favorite crisps of all time. <laughs> you get to stick them on your fingers and it looks like a monster <laughs> and it tastes of pickles. Like, what more could you want in a snack? Oh my god, I think I just found my soulmate. I don't believe it. <laughs> I know what I'm getting you for a present the first yes. time. <laughs> and what's so amazing is that like you eat them and they literally come out of every pore of your body. I yeah, mean they you are can't on take... you for the whole day. That's it. You can't taste anything for the next twenty four hours after no, you've had no. a of one of those. <laughs> oh my god, you've really thrown me. I think I'm, I'm glad I've made your day. <laughs> I'm I'm done now. We can stop the recording. I don't care about the other questions. <laughs> this is why crisps are so important that you can have conversations like this, right? Yeah. Okay. Oh, my God. What is the craziest food you've ever eaten? I don't know if it's, I would call it crazy, but it was definitely one of the worst. And it was, um, I'm really sorry. It was durian <laughs> and I had it in Malaysia and and I was with Rob and Rob was like, mmm, isn't it yummy? And I was like, oh. It's quite an acquired taste, isn't it? Really is. Yeah. yeah. I haven't actually had it, but I had it in ice cream form. It's a place in Soho that mm. um, is like a sort of uh, Southeast Asian ice cream parlor. And they do yeah. durian ice cream. Um, quite an eye opener. I don't think I can revisit it. I mean, the thing is, I like, I love jackfruit, which is one of my favorite fruits, which I, I've heard has similar overtones. Right. Okay. Because it also looks very similar to yeah, durian. Yeah, they do. They do, yeah. Yeah. But jackfruit is, um, I could eat that all day, every day. Uh, durian, no, I'm afraid. <laughs> yeah. What's your most memorable meal? Okay, so Rob and I... Uh, went to the Lake District and um, he was in, sorry, this is not so quick fire, but we went to the Lake That's District okay. and I remember this because he was, this was his like longest period of recovery. So who he was as a person and how he was enjoying his food was just completely different. And we went to this restaurant, which from memory was called Lake Road Kitchen. And he'd found the restaurant, like he, he I don't know, he'd read like Cumbria, whatever the local magazine was. And these guys, these two guys set this restaurant up, uh, young guys, and they foraged like everything. So the, each dish was so unique and so special. Wow. And I still remember every, like every moment of that meal was just superb. And they, and it had a story. And when I say it had a story, I don't mean that in a pretentious way, like, cause these guys were so down to earth. Yeah, yeah, and I've yeah. always said, if I ever, ever go back to the Lake District, like a hundred percent, I'm going to go there and oh, have wow. that. Yeah. It was so special. What food sums up happiness for you? My mum's biryani. I mean, honestly, it is my, uh, <laughs> It's my last meal on earth meal. Yeah. She'll laugh because, you know, it's, yeah, I could eat that for breakfast. <laughs> and that's okay. And that's okay. I actually, I actually yeah. weirdly quite like, like, sort of like savoury things for breakfast, to be honest. I'd happily eat a leftover for breakfast. Yeah, someone, uh, I can't remember someone who told me this, like human beings are the only people that have different foods for their breakfast. Like animals, uh, other animals don't. They just, 
you know, we we have things that we call breakfast foods, but quite yeah, frankly, yeah, yeah. it's just food. So absolutely, could, in theory, like, what, anything, is, what is yeah. breakfast at this point? You know, I know. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Final question: Live yeah. to eat or eat to live? Oh, uh, live to eat. Yay! Yeah, that's the one. Yeah. I mean, I know I need to eat to live, but I definitely am guided by live to eat. Absolutely. Oh, Porno, you have been an absolute delight. I feel like we all need a friend like you. I think that you are, no, really, you are, um, you're you're a very, very special person. And I wish you the best of luck with your powerlifting journey. And I, now that we're basically soulmates through Monster Munch, <laughs> I will be following that intently. <laughs> Thank you, Hannah. It's such a joy, honestly. Thank you. You can follow Porna on social media at Pornabell. Until next time. Thank you for tuning in. If you love what you hear, please subscribe and review. Don't forget to follow me on Instagram at Crazy Sexy Food and check out the Crazy Sexy Food YouTube channel. Until next time, bye!